All right, you guys can turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. So you may not know this about me. Before I started dating my wife, Julie, I hadn't dated very much. I'd actually only dated, a, gone on a, just a few days, just a handful of days before Julie and I started dating. Um, but I was 26 when we started dating, and so most of my friends were married at that point in time. Yeah, I didn't date much as a young guy. Um, hope for any of you college students who don't go on many dates. Neither had I. It works out all right. Julie's a catch. Um, but anyway, so we started dating around 26, and most of my friends were married at that time. So I had seen dating. I had seen their dating relationship, so I understood dating in theory. I had a pretty good understanding of the concept of dating, but then I started dating Julie, and I realized very quickly that there is a big difference between understanding dating in theory and in practice. I really didn't understand how to date someone well. I remember a month into our relationship, things are going well, and I take her to a movie for the first time, and at this movie, I really wanted to hold her hand because I knew that's... That's what you do when you're dating. You hold her hand. That's nice. That's, that was what you want to do. And I really wanted to do it. So I was excited to hold her hand. There's just one problem. I had no idea how do you actually get there. How do I actually get her hand in mine? Do I go stealth and try to sneak my hand under hers ninja style? Or, or do I just man up and grab her hand? Or, or do I be a gentleman and wait for her to offer my hand? I don't know. I'm, I'm freaking out and the movie is starting. And I know if I don't do something soon, she's going to think that I don't like her. And so in desperation, finally, I turn to her and I say, Julie, can I please hold your hand? <laughs> yeah, sounds romantic, but I felt like such a goober. Now, she said yes. She said yes. It was good. But yeah, it was awesome. Uh, (laughs) We had to watch the movie a second time because I had no clue what actually happened in the movie. But it was just one more proof to me that even though I understood dating in theory, I understood the concept of it, I had no idea how to actually practice it. I did not know what it looked like to actually date a girl. Well, uh, James has left us in exactly the same place. He has confronted us with exactly the same problem in our last passage, first part of James chapter 4. He gave us a ton of theory, but he did not tell us how to actually practice it, how to live it out. So look with me, James chapter 4. Look with me starting in verse 6. James says, but he, that is God, gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Uh, For the sake of reminding you guys, the big idea of that passage, the big idea we studied two weeks ago, is that God gives his grace to the humble, not to the proud. If you want God's grace, you have to be humble. You you can't be prideful and receive grace from God. That's a big idea. Now, to to understand that idea, let's let's define those key terms again. Let's start with the, the last one, proud. What does it mean to be proud? Now, in English, the word proud or pride can be a good thing. I tell my kids all the time that I'm proud of them. I want them to take pride in their accomplishments and grow up to be to be confident adults. So in English, proud can be good. In the Bible, Proud is never good. In Greek, proud is is never good. Pride is always a bad thing in the Bible. The word proud there in in verse six, it literally means um, to show yourself above other people. You see yourself as better than everyone else. You are busy looking down on everyone else. To be prideful, to be proud means to have an exaggerated opinion of yourself. You see yourself as better than you actually are. 
And the Greeks had a really neat word for this. The ancient Greeks, the word hubris, same word we often use today. Hubris for the ancient Greeks, what it, what it pictured was the guy who thought that he was equal to or even superior to the gods. He, he had lost touch with reality. He did not see his place in the hierarchy of the universe. That's exactly what the Bible means by pride. You've lost touch with reality. You don't see your place in the hierarchy of the universe God has designed. You don't see yourself as small and insignificant and God as great. You don't see that because you're too busy looking down on everyone else. As C.S. Lewis eloquently put it, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So so pride prevents us from knowing and walking with God because we're too busy looking down on everyone else. To be proud is to have an exaggerated opinion of yourself. It's the opposite of the second word we need to define, humility or humble. What does it mean to be humble? Well, we, we talked a couple weeks ago, humility literally just means to get low. To, to be low in front of others. Humility is to have an accurate opinion of yourself, to accurately see yourself as low, as small, as sinful, as needy, living before an almighty, awesome, perfect God. That's the idea of humility, to have an accurately low opinion of yourself. You see accurately your place in the universe, that God is great and magnificent and you are not. That's humility. Now, interestingly, the Greeks looked down on humility. The Greeks did not want to have anything to do with humility because to them, humility meant weakness and servility. But the Bible exalts humility. The Bible embraces humility as one of the essential character traits of the people of God. If you want to follow God, you must be humble. Humility is essential for walking with God. James says, because humility is the only way you get grace. You cannot have grace without humility. Now, what is grace? The word grace, charis in Greek, it just means undeserved favor. Undeserved favor from God. You get something good from God that you do not deserve. James wants us to understand grace from God always comes through humility, always. That's true of of the ultimate gift of grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. How do you get saved? How is it that you get saved and receive eternal life? Through humble faith. You have to abandon your prideful efforts to earn God's love, to to work for eternal life. You have to recognize that all of your good deeds don't earn you jack from God. Instead of trying to earn God's love, you have to humble yourself and receive it. Receive it as a free gift through faith, believing that what you can't do, earn eternal life, God has already done for you by sending his son Jesus to to take your sins upon himself and die in your place and then rise from the dead. And now that gift of eternal life is yours for free. All you have to do is receive it in faith. Just humble yourself and receive eternal life as a free gift by believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's how you get grace, through humble faith. That's always true, not just of that momentous moment when you receive the ultimate gift of eternal life, but every day thereafter. Every day of our lives, we are in need of God's grace. If you try to do this life on your own, you will fail. 
Because you're a sinner. You, you don't have the strength to honor God. You don't have the strength to obey God. If you try to do it on your own, you will always fall into sin. So God offers you strength. He offers you the strength that you need to resist sin and obey him. And it's yours as a free gift if you will just receive it in humility. If you'll humble yourself before God, he will saturate your life with his grace, with his strength. That's the point of verse six. God gives that that gracious strength to those who humble themselves before him. So clearly, uh, it's better to be humble than to not be humble. Because when you're humble, you get God's grace. If you're not humble, if you're proud, he cuts you off from his grace. It's better to be humble than not be humble. That's clear, that's easy. But how do you actually practice humility? What does humility look like in your day-to-day life? We face the same problem that I did trying to date Julie. I understood dating as a concept, but I didn't know how to actually apply it. We understand humility in theory. We know it's a good thing. We should be humble. We got that nailed. But how do you actually live a humble life? What does it look like to be a humble college student, a humble doctor, humble real estate agent, a humble mom, a humble dad? What does that look like in life? How do you live out humility? Well, James is going to give us two particular ways today that we can resist pride and walk in humility. He's not going to be exhaustive. Nowhere close. The Bible has a ton to teach us about what humility looks like. James is just going to focus on two particular areas of life where we need to apply humility. And so let's jump into that. The first particular application of humility that James wants to look at is our speech. How do we speak humbly about other people? That's the point of verses 11 and 12. So look with me at 11 and 12. James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? You know, to understand what James is doing here, we've got to define a couple key words. What does he mean there right at the beginning when he talks about speaking against your brothers, speaking against other believers? What does it mean to speak against? In Greek, the word is really broad. It just means to speak negatively about someone else. It's used a ton of different ways in the Bible, lots of different sins of speech that the Bible wraps under this one term. It includes slander. Now, slander is when you say something false and damaging about a person or group. So something false and damaging about another person or another group of people, it may be that you share it privately just to one other person, or it may be that you shout it publicly while they're around. Slander is is really prevalent these days on the internet. That's where you see it the most, is when we say false things that hurt a person or group, um, and it spreads throughout the internet and does damage to them. That's slander. So slander is to say something false about someone. Uh, The second term that's wrapped up into this biblically is gossip. Gossip is similar. Gossip is when you say something true but damaging about another person or group. So gossip is when you share something that is true but hurtful in a way that is inappropriate. You share it with someone who has no business knowing that information. You, You share a story that is not your story to share and you hurt someone by sharing that information. That's gossip. This term also includes ridicule. Ridicule is when we publicly point out another person's faults or limitations. Uh, Ridicule is what most of us did around the cafeteria table in high school. 
That's, 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 you go to cafeteria, you go to lunch in high school, and it's like one big game of ridicule. Who can make themselves look the best by pointing out everyone else's faults? That's, that's ridicule. High, high schoolers do it all the time. Um, unfortunately, we do too. <laughs> College students, adults, we do this often too. Now, we're more sophisticated. We tend to baptize our ridicule in the name of politics or sports, but that doesn't make it okay. Anytime you badmouth a person or a group, you're committing ridicule, this sin of speaking ill or speaking against someone. Finally, this word biblically, it includes the idea of insubordination. Insubordination, this is what um, I did, unfortunately, frequently in college. I would gather around the lunch table with my, my friends and we would badmouth our professors that we didn't like. We would complain and gripe to one another about the dumb things our professors were doing that we didn't like. That's insubordination. You may think, how exact is that insubordination? You're just complaining about someone. Well, by complaining about them, what I'm saying is that I don't submit to the authority God has given them in my life. They may not deserve that authority. Who cares? They have it by God's choice. And so when I complain to my friends about that professor, I'm doing this thing. I'm speaking ill of him. I'm committing this sin of insubordination. It's a big deal, serious thing. And so this idea of speaking against one another, it includes anything that we say ill of another person, anything we say that's hurtful to another person, whether they're present or not, whether it's true or not, it's speaking against another person and it's antithetical to humility. It's sin of speech. Second key thing that James points out. So that's the first word that we need to define. Second word that James uses to describe this sin, another facet of this sin, is to judge one another. What does it mean to judge a a brother or sister in Christ? And that word judge, krino in Greek, it actually just means to set apart or to distinguish. You make judgments all day long, every day. We always are judging, and that's often a good thing. The Bible often uses judge in the good sense. When God distinguishes between good and bad, when you distinguish between right and wrong, that's, that's judging in the good sense. But here it's clearly negative. It's not good in this passage. What James means by judging your brothers here is that you are publicly pointing out someone's faults or sins in order to condemn him. Publicly pointing out their faults. So you're telling others about the bad things that someone did or about how they're limited, how they're, they're not as good as you. That's judging your brother. Publicly pointing out his faults to others in order to condemn him or make him look bad. Now, to understand that, we need to make a a distinction here. We need to make sure we understand something. Look at chapter 5, the end of the book. Chapter 5, verse 19. James says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God does not want us to ignore each other's sin. That's not loving. That's not good to just ignore when when a brother or sister in Christ is in sin because sin leads to really painful, destructive consequences. God wants us to, to confront one another and exhort one another and rebuke one another towards righteousness and holiness. But notice how it's done in James 5. Who do you go to when you see sin? You go to the sinner. You go straight to the brother or sister who has done something wrong. You don't go tell other people about it. You don't spread that to other people. You go privately, safely to that one brother who has sinned, and you go out of a motivation of love. 
You want them to be restored. You're not condemning them. You're seeking their restoration and deliverance from that sin. That's judging in a good sense. That's confronting sin in a good sense. You go directly to the sinner and you seek their restoration. That's what Jesus laid out for us. What Jesus talked about in one of his most famous passages on church discipline, Matthew 18. Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus lays out a process of how we confront sin. When you see a brother or sister in Christ sinning, what do you do? You go to them alone privately in love, seeking their repentance and restoration. If they don't listen, then what do you do? You go to one or at most two other people who have witnessed the sin, who are also believers, and you bring them into the process and you go back to the sinner, not to other people. And again, you seek their restoration and repentance. And if they still will not listen, then who do you go to? Then you go to the leadership of the church, the elders who go and confront the person. And if still they do not listen, then the elders bring it to the church and the church exercises discipline. So God wants us to, to confront one another in sin. There's a time and a place for confrontation and church discipline, but that is not what James is talking about in chapter four. Notice the difference in chapter four. Who do you go to when you see sin? You go to everybody else. Don't go to the sinner, you go to his friends. You go to the rest of the church body and share his sin. You share his faults, not for the sake of of restoring him, but for the sake of, of condemning him, of making him look bad. That's the kind of judging that James is bringing up here in chapter four. So what James is doing is he is challenging us to speak humbly about one another by resisting two sins of speech. First, speaking against one another, slander, gossip, ridicule, insubordination. Or second, judging one another, publicly pointing out each other's faults and sins for the sake of making ourselves look good and others look bad. So James rebukes us for these two sins, and then he tells us why. Why is it that we must avoid these sins of speech? He gives us two reasons. First, because when we do this, when we speak negatively of others, it makes us lawbreakers. That's the point of verse 11. In verse 11, James, um, it can be a little bit confusing. Um, He skips some of the argument because he assumes we kind of understand what he's doing here. Um, James assumes that we know that when you say something bad about a person, you are sinning. You're you're breaking God's law. It's actually really easy to prove that. Turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 8. James says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, that is the law of the king, the law of Jesus, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So the law commands that we love our neighbor as ourselves. that we love our neighbor. Well, when I speak mean of my neighbor, when I badmouth him, when I gossip, slander, ridicule, judge him, I'm not loving him. That's the opposite of love, and so I am therefore breaking God's law. I'm no longer a doer of the law, I'm a lawbreaker. That's the the point there. So that's the first reason why we have to avoid those sins. The second reason is even more significant. When you judge your brother, when you speak ill of your brother, you are usurping God's authority. That's the point of verse 12. What James wants us to understand, when you choose to to break this command, chapter 2, verse 8, of of loving one another in your speech, when you choose to break that command and speak ill of a person, slander, gossip, ridicule, judging another person, 
By breaking that law, what you're really saying is that you get to decide which of God's commands are worthy of obedience and which are not. These are worthy of obedience, but this command to love people through my words, that's, that's, not, really, that's not really worthy of my time, not worthy of my obedience. And by choosing not to obey that command, what you're really doing is saying that you stand in authority over the law and over God's people. You're the judge. That's, that's what it is. When we, when we speak ill of one another, when we condemn one another, when we point out each other's faults, what we are doing is saying, God, I stand in your place. God, I, I want your throne. I get to be the judge of the law and of your people. Every time you judge another believer, you're, you're committing a coup d'etat against God. You are challenging his right to rule the universe. You're saying, I get to be the judge and lawgiver. But James wants us to understand, when, when we speak ill of one another, when we participate in these sins of speech, when we judge one another, that is the pinnacle of pride. We are challenging God's place in the universe, and because it's pride, it cuts us off from the grace of God. So how do we resist this sin? How do we make sure that we're not committing these sins of speech? Well, let me give you three practical suggestions, three specific things that you can implement in your life to keep you from committing these sins. First of all, the big idea, this is the most important one, go always to the person, not to other people. When someone hurts you, when someone sins against you, When someone frustrates you, when someone angers you or disappoints you, don't go tell other people about it. Go to the person who's hurt you or frustrated you or angered you. Go to them and talk about what has happened. Seek a restoration in that relationship, but don't go complain to other people. Students, don't complain about your professors to friends. If you've got a legitimate beef with your professor, go to him or go to her. You have no business griping about it to other students. That's that's sin. Don't complain about your boss. If your boss does something that you hate, you have no right to complain to others about that. The only person you can talk to about that is your boss. Go to them, share what they've done that's hurt you. That's the only appropriate path. Go to the person who's hurt you or who's sinned. Don't share it with other people. Now that said, sometimes when God is calling us to confront someone about what they've done that's hurt us or some sin in their lives, sometimes we need wisdom. Sometimes we need wise counsel. Biblically, it is okay to seek counsel in those situations, but you need to be really careful about getting advice. So often in the church, getting advice turns into gossip. You end up sharing this thing that's happened because you want advice, but really what you want is to let other people know. And so you you tell 10 people who tell 10 people, and all of a sudden the whole church knows about what this guy did to you. That's gossip. That's that's not seeking wise counsel. If you're sharing it with 10 people, I guarantee that's gossip. It's okay to share it with maybe one or two people who can be a wise counselor to you. You're looking for someone who will be a safe person to share it with. They will be discreet. They will not tell anyone else about it. You're looking for a vault, a person who is a vault. You're looking for a person who is is wise and can give you guidance about how to deal with the situation. Ideally, you're looking for someone who is uninvolved. Uh, I can pretty much guarantee you if you're struggling at work with your boss and you don't know how to confront your boss, it may not be best to talk to a coworker. Because by talking to a coworker, now you're compromising his or her relationship with the boss too. You need to talk to somebody who doesn't work at that company, who can give you outside counsel about what to do in that situation. So look for one or two people who are wise believers, who who will protect that information and keep it confidential, and who are uninvolved in it. 
Third piece of advice, and this is really the summary one, the little bow that we can tie on the end of it. Do what your mommy taught you to do. If you have nothing good to say about someone, don't say anything at all. That's just safe biblical practice. If you don't have something good to say, don't say anything. Keep your mouth shut. Don't fall prey to this sin of speaking negatively about other people. Okay, so humility applied to our speech means that we only ever love people with our words. We never speak ill of them. We never condemn them, judge them, slander, gossip, ridicule, or insubordination. Second area of life that James wants to look at and and apply humility to is planning. Very different thing. It's kind of interesting how the two parts of this passage fit together. He looks at a very different thing that also needs humility. How do you plan for the future? That's what James wants to look at next. What does it mean to humbly plan for the future? That's where he goes starting in verse 13. James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil." Now, let me begin by clarifying what this is not. This passage is not a condemnation of planning. James isn't condemning planning for the future. Planning is a good thing. It's good to prepare for the future. I'm a planner, a big planner. If you want to stress me out, just propose something spontaneous to me. Actually, it won't stress me out because um, I I don't work for you, so I'm just going to say no to you. I don't do spontaneous. I got two twin three-year-olds. Spontaneity ruins our household. We, We have lots of planning, intense planning in the Jennings household. That's the only thing that keeps the wheels on the bus in our home. Planning is good. Bible tells us, Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. God wants you to plan. He wants you to be wise. He wants you to plan for your education, your career, your family, your home, your retirement, your health. He wants you to plan in detail about the future. So this is not a condemnation of planning. It's also not a condemnation of profit. It's not a bad thing that this merchant wants to make a profit. The Bible is not anti-capitalistic. Jesus actually uses financial profit as the basis for many of his parables in scripture. He assumes that profit is a good motivation for business. Now, as we spoke about earlier in James, profit is good so long as you don't gain it through immoral means and it does not distract you from what is far more important in life, the kingdom of God. Profit's okay if it doesn't violate those things. So this is not a condemnation of planning or profit. What this passage is, is a condemnation of presumptuous planning. That's what James is rebuking us for, planning presumptuously, planning for the future as if we control it, as if we determine our destiny. That's what this merchant does. He plans for the future as if he's the one who controls his destiny. He plans as if he controls his time, he controls his location, he controls his business activity, he even controls the results of his business. He's going to make a profit. He plans as if he is the sovereign, as if he's the one who controls his destiny. That's presumptuous. Uh, second, he, he tells us that, that or this idea of presumptuous planning, not only does, does he plan as if he controls our future, uh, or as, he, as if we control our future, but this is planning that leaves God out. Important to remember, James is writing to believers. 
This hypothetical merchant is a believer in the story. He's a follower of God. He believes in God, but God sits on the bench in his life. God gets to warm the bench because God is superfluous. I don't need you, God. You're good. I'm going to give you lip service because I'm a Christian, but I'm the one who determines my destiny. I'm the one who sets my plans. And so God gets left out of this guy's planning. That's presumptuous planning. God's in a, in a secondary role, a superfluous role. Uh, James tells us that this merchant is motivated by pride. That's verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Literally in Greek, it says, you boast in your arrogances, plural. You boast in all of the things that make you feel safe, secure, confident, and great. You boast in your intellect. You boast in your skill. You boast in your experience. You boast in your charisma as a great businessman. You boast in your strength. You boast in all the things that you bring to the table of life. That's arrogance. That's presumptuous planning. You are basing your future upon your ability to work everything out. That's what this merchant is doing. That's the basic problem of this guy. He's trusting in himself to provide for his future. God is great, but God sits on the bench because I don't need you, God. I got this. I can work the future out exactly as I intend. I've got everything I need in my mind, my strength, my hands. I have what I need to be successful. That's arrogance, that's prideful, that's presumptuous planning. That's how I planned when I was in college. I can identify very, very easily with this merchant. When I was in your shoes, when I was in college, I had a very clear plan for my life. Very clear plan. I was going to graduate and, and get involved in automotive engineering, and then I would get my MBA, and then I would be leading a project team by 30, and I would run the company by 40, and I would be a multimillionaire by 45. I had it all planned. I kid you not, down to charts, everything. Had it all planned out. I had a great plan for my life. But it was arrogance. It was an arrogant plan because God was left out. I acted as if I'm the one who controls my future. Now as a believer, I came to church on Sundays. I was fine with God having Sunday, but Monday through Saturday were for the plan because the plan is mine. The plan is how I make my life a success. If I do A, B, and C, I get X, Y, and Z. I acted as if I control my fate so that when the plan worked out, I would get all the credit. This is going to be great. I'm going to do all these things by the strength of my intellect and will and get everything that I ever wanted. I planned arrogantly for the future. Great plan, all down to detail, but my life became all about the plan. God gets Sunday, the plan gets everything else. That's arrogance, and and James points that out. He points out the arrogance of it, but he also points out the foolishness of it. James would laugh at my plan. What an idiot I was to think that I could plan my future. James points out how foolish it is. He tells us it's foolish for two reasons. First of all, because we don't know what the future holds. That's the point in the beginning of verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. How foolish is this merchant who has this detailed plan, but he doesn't know if a flood is going to come and wipe out his business. He doesn't know if he's going to get robbed. He doesn't know if he's going to get sick and can no longer work. He doesn't know if he's going to go in debt and be bankrupt. He doesn't know what the future holds. He has no idea. As it says in Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You can't plan your, you can't, you can't control the future because you don't know the future. You don't know what's coming. So the next chapter of my story, I, I got the grades I planned. 
I got the grades, I got the resume I planned, I did all the projects that I needed to do, I did everything that I was required to do in my plan to be successful. Here's the problem. I graduated in 1998, about six months after the 1997 financial collapse of the Asian economy. Big recession hit Asia. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You weren't reading the news back then. It was a big deal. The Asian economy tanked, and it took the rest of the world with it, and the automotive industry is a global industry. And so they shut down. They weren't hiring anywhere for anything. And so I had done everything that I needed to do. I was a success according to my plan, but because of world events, literally on the other side of the world, I didn't get the job. Didn't get the job I wanted because none were offered. I was crushed. I was broken. That was a moment that I learned how arrogant am I to think that I can control the future when I don't even know what tomorrow holds. Second reason that James wants us to understand that presumptuous planning is folly is because not only do we not know what the future holds, but our lives are fleeting. Our lives are fleeting. That's the second part of verse 14. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We don't control the future. We don't even know if we have a future. Am I going to even be alive tomorrow? I don't know. Neither do you. Our lives are fleeting. They vanish in an instant. My dad had a great friend, believer, great guy, incredible man, um, incredibly healthy, worked out all the time, ate healthily. It's the kind of guy who you thought would live to 100. He was working out on his treadmill one day in his mid-40s, had an aneurysm, and was dead in seconds. Game over. It's done. His life is at an end. He could have never predicted that. There's no way to know. Your life is fleeting. It is a vapor. It could be over in an instant. Jesus rebuked us for the same thing, one of his most famous parables, Luke 12. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do? Since I have no place to store my crops, then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. So take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. My kids have a rhyming Bible that we've been reading to them their, their whole lives, and, and it has this story in it. And the title of this story is The Poor Rich Man. I love that title. He's a rich man by ancient standards. He was incredibly rich, and yet he's poor because he doesn't get to enjoy any of it. He was a fool. He lived only for material gain on this planet, and then when he had finally accumulated it, he died and didn't get to enjoy any of it. Presumptuous planning is foolish because you don't know what tomorrow holds and you don't know how long you have on this planet. So James has rebuked presumptuous planning and he has shown how foolish it is. And then in verse 15, he reveals to us the other alternative. How do you plan humbly for the future? God wants you to plan. Planning again is a good thing. But how do you plan for your future in a way that is humble? Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills. Let's, let's be clear right from the beginning. Those are not magic words. You don't get to make your plans for the future and then attach those words to the beginning of it and all of a sudden sanctify your plans. You don't guarantee your success by quoting these words. I say that because people have tried to do that for centuries. There's a lot of documents that have these words in Latin on the top as an attempt to sanctify and bless the plan. It doesn't work that way. 
It's not about the words, it's about the attitude. It's the attitude that counts. Humble planning plans for the future in detail. It uses wisdom. It plans in detail for what's coming, but then it entrusts the plan to God. That's the attitude of humility. When you plan your future, do a great job planning. Plan with the best of them. Make detailed plans, charts, everything you need, but then give the plan to God. Entrust your future to him. Recognize that God is sovereign and you are not. God gets to call the shots, you don't. Submit your plans to him. Let him be the ruler of the universe. Submit everything to him. That's the the attitude that James is challenging us to do. You plan for the future, but then you hand your plan to the Lord. You entrust it to him. Again, this, this is an exact contrast to the merchant. What was the merchant counting in to prosper him in the future? his skill, his intellect, his business acumen, his strength. He's trusting in himself. That's where pride comes into planning. Don't trust in yourself. Your future success is not dependent upon you. It's not at all dependent upon you. It's dependent on God alone. And trust your future to him. Let him be your provider. Trust in him to take care of you. So make your plans, but then submit them to the feet of God. And what this practically looks like, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in my life, is make your plan in detail, but then hold it loosely. Hold it loosely. Make your plans, and then hold them loosely. I love how Corey Ten Boom put it. Hold everything in your hands lightly, otherwise it hurts when God pries your fingers open. Exactly right. Make your plans and then hold them loosely, recognizing that that God's going to take care of you. When things go off plan, it's okay. Make your plans, but then when things go off plan, don't worry about it. Make your plans, but expect that God is going to take you off plan, probably frequently, and it's okay. Why? Because God is a better planner than you are. God is the best strategic planner out there. Why? Because he sees the future. We don't. Because he controls the future, we don't. Because he knows what's best for us, we don't. Because he sees how our lives affect everyone else's lives, we don't. So when God takes you off plan, relax. Don't stress out, don't be angry. It's okay. God is watching over you. He knows what's best. He's got your back. He will protect you and bless you if you'll just trust him. If you'll walk in humility, God will lead you in the best path. So yes, save for retirement. Save lots of money for retirement. But then when the market crashes and you lose half of it, don't worry. God still got your future taken care of. God did not need your retirement fund to provide for you in old age. He owns everything, the whole universe. He doesn't need that 401k. He's got you covered. So make your plans, plan for the future, but then hold them loosely, recognizing God's a better planner than you are. He will take care of you. And so let me share the final chapter of my story, a little epilogue to my story. Um, I didn't get the job I wanted. I took a job I didn't want, um, but it paid the bills. It was all right, still engineering, uh, but I didn't like it. And because I didn't like it, I started to look for other things. I started teaching in the church, uh, started finding that I, I like to teach. And I did that for about 18 months. And then Brian Fisher, our senior pastor, called and said, could I come be an intern here at, at Grace in the college ministry? I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. But before I gave him my answer, General Motors called. 18 months later, 
The crash, the economic meltdown is over and General Motors has found my resume and they fly me to Detroit and two managers meet with me and they offer me the job I'd always wanted. I get to build prototypes of future cars and take them all over the world to all the car shows and I was just couldn't believe it. There was a job. That, that's what I worked for. That's what college was about, to get that job, to lead a prototyping team at General Motors. I was so excited about that job. They offered it to me, it's mine. What did I do? I turned it down because God had used the pain and disappointment in my life to show me something better. Yeah, I like building cars, but what I like more is teaching people God's word. That's what resonates with my heart. That's what I was designed to do. That's my favorite thing in the world. And so now I'm here and there's no job I'd rather have. There's no place in the country or in the world I would rather live than right here in College Station being a part of this church. But I didn't know it when I was in college. And so I made a plan and God took me elsewhere because he knew what would be best. I really wish that back in college, I had recognized that God can be trusted. That would have saved me a lot of heartache if I would have recognized that he's got my back, that he knows what's best, that he's gonna take me off plan occasionally or actually a lot in the course of my life. Who knew I would be here? No one saw that coming, least of all me. But God knew and he could be trusted. He's watching over you. You can entrust your future to him. So that's what it means to plan humbly for the future. You do a great job planning. You take advantage of all the wise counsel God has for you in this world and in this church to plan for the future. But then you submit your plans to him and hold them loosely. Trusting that he's a far better planner than you are. So let's, let's wrap this together. How do we actually apply this? I want to give you two questions to reflect on today and this coming week. I want you to ask yourself, How have you spoken of others lately? In the last six weeks, how have you been speaking about other people? Have you been participating in in any way in slander or gossip or ridicule or fault finding? Or have you been loving people consistently through your speech? Pray that God would, would convict you of places where you have been speaking pridefully about other people. You've been speaking hurtfully about them. Second question to ask yourself is how have I been planning for the future? How have I been planning for the future? How have I been making a plan, but then entrusting it to God and holding it loosely? Or have I been making a plan based on my trust and my intellect and my wisdom and my skill and my strength and my charisma and my relationships? And then when things go off plan, do I, do I get angry and stressed out over it? It's, it's interesting. Actually, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Anger and stress are a gift from God. Anger and stress are his red flags in your life. When they go off, you know, I've not been trusting God in this area because I'm, I'm freaking out that things aren't working out there. So anger and stress, open your eyes to see I'm not trusting God with my future. I'm trusting in me to make things work. Pray that God would show you. Have you been trusting your future to him? Have you been walking in humility as you think and pray and plan for the future? So reflect on these two questions and I'll leave you with what James leaves us with at the end of chapter four, verse 17. He says, therefore to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is James' big, bold exclamation point at the end of his passage. He's just telling us, hey, now you know. Now you know what humility looks like. It's no longer nebulous. You know what it looks like applied to how you speak about other people and how you plan for the future. And if you don't follow the advice of this chapter, it's not just foolishness, it is sin. So let's pray for God's help to apply this passage to our lives and walk in humility. Lord God, we acknowledge 
that you are great and majestic, sovereign and splendid. Lord, you are glorious and powerful. You know all things, see all things. Lord, you hold all things in your hands. You are creator. Lord, you are infinitely righteous and holy and just and perfect in every way. Lord, compared to you, we are absolutely nothing. We are small and weak and insignificant. We are sinful and evil and needy and dependent. And Lord, we acknowledge that and we rejoice that you freely have chosen to love us. If it wasn't you choosing to love us, Lord, then we would have no hope. There's nothing that we could do to compel you to love us. It's only by your grace and mercy that we have hope and love and life. Lord, thank you that you have freely chosen to love us. I pray, Father, that you would humble us before you. I pray that you would convict each and every one of us, myself included, of the places in life where we have given into pride. Father, break us of our pride. Grow us in humility. I pray, Father, that we would learn to walk in humility. I pray that we would learn to speak about one another in humility. That we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ through what we say about one another. I pray, Father, help us only ever to love one another in our words. And I pray, second, Lord, that you would help us to to think humbly about the future, Lord. Many of us here are, are, are at times in our lives when we're thinking about the future, planning for the future, preparing for the future. I pray that your spirit would guide us to be wise in that, that we would wisely plan, but then that we would humbly submit our plans to you. You are sovereign, we are not. You get to call the shots, God. So we submit our best laid plans at your feet. Do with them as you see fit. We hold our plans loosely, Lord. Take us off plan wherever you want to. Lord, you know what's best. You know what we need. Thank you that we can trust our future to you. I pray, Father, that you would grow us in humility. Also that your son may be glorified and honored in this place. In his perfect name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.